So my name is Scott Burnett. I am one of the pastors here. I get to be one of the pastors here. It is a delight to be part of this congregation and this staff. And um, I love my bosses, who you might notice are not here today. The Berger family is away vacationing. And uh, they might be with us in the live stream. I'm not really sure. In fact, I probably should check in here in case they're telling me that I'm messing something up. Or, <laughs> they wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. Why is it stuck? Anyway, I need this on uh, because we're, I might be asking the live streamers for some input a little later on. So that's a heads up for you live streamers. All right. So speaking of Pastor Paul and Pastor Britta, over the last couple of weeks, let's see, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Paul brought a sermon on Acts chapter 6 and the choosing of the seven. So if you remember that, the, the, the leadership core of this brand new way, it was, they, weren't, they weren't even yet called Christians. They were like a subset of Judaism and uh, they were often referred to as the way. So the central leadership team was the 12 apostles. But as things were growing and there were more and more people involved and there was more and more administration to be done, because it wasn't just a thing where they were like showing up at the temple once a week for an hour or an hour and a half. They were doing life together and they were selling property and sharing the resources. They were making sure that the widows had food. And some of that was beginning to get a little bit complicated for the 12. So they agreed to call the seven. These were seven Hellenist Jews, so Greek-speaking Jews, and they uh, helped figure out how to make sure that the distribution of food, etc., was equitable, um, and that the Greek-speaking widows were not being left out. So Pastor Paul, um, he had a, a few very interesting observations, but one of them that stuck with me was he pointed out that in the Greek what the seven were doing and what the twelve were doing was the, the same verb referred to the ministries they had. Uh, diakonia, the Greek word that we get deacon from. Whether they were serving in teaching scripture or serving in running the food bank, it was the same thing. And in fact, it's the same word that is used of uh, the ministry of Jesus in some places. So there's a real commonality there. The other thing is um, we know from two of those seven that they didn't see any kind of incongruency between... Um, waiting on tables or running the food bank, however you want to look at that, and 
teaching the Word of God and discipling people and leading people to faith because they were doing all of it. Two that are highlighted, uh, one of them is Stephen, and that Pastor Britta talked with us last week about Stephen and the great ministry he had, um, doing signs and wonders, teaching and having um, conversations um, in the temple like all the time. Ultimately, he... Uh, the, the effectiveness of his ministry apparently sparked some jealousy among the religious establishment. And so they confronted him. He was bold enough to speak truth back to that power. And um, he then uh, ultimately lost his life in, in that exchange because... Um, the conflict grew so intense. So he was the the first martyr of the early church. And that also sparked a scattering of many of those early followers of the way out of Jerusalem. And so the second of the seven that we know a little bit more about than just their names... Um, is Philip, and we're going to, going to see more about him today. He, um, again, was working with Stephen and uh, with food distribution, but also was a preacher. And so as they were, as some of the believers were scattered out from Jerusalem, he went to Samaria and preached the gospel there and sparked uh, a revival. Like lots of Samaritans were coming to faith, and he was baptizing them. And Peter and John heard about it, and they came up and um, continued the work, and these new Samaritan believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and it was like, wow, this is expanding our categories, you know, of what this thing is. You know, it's, it's moving beyond. One thing to note is all of that is following uh, the, the last thing that Jesus said to um, his followers prior to the ascension, which was, uh, the Holy Spirit is coming. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes, preach in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> so we see, in a sense, the lordship of Jesus overarching this movement of uh, the word going out from Jerusalem throughout Judea, now into Samaria through Philip. And uh, we're about to see how it's going to begin to touch the ends of the earth. So that's a, a bit of an overview of um, uh, where, we're, where we've been and the hinge toward where we're going. The, um, so we're in Act 8, specifically 
verses 26 to 40. And uh, I want to do, I want to set up some things for you. I'm going to read it in a few minutes, but um, I want to put some markers in your mind uh, before we um, launch into that. So there are two main characters, Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. There are other personal presences in and around this narrative. I have found that it's easy to read past some of those, especially because Philip and the Ethiopian are so compelling in, in and of themselves. They're very interesting characters. Um, but the more that I've read and reread the passage, the more I think it's important to note some of these other uh, personal presences. So one is Luke, the writer of Acts, the writer of this narrative that we're looking at today. Now remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, Luke is writing this in the 80s about something that happened in the 30s. <clears throat> so there's about a half a century differential between when he's writing it and what he's writing about. And so the people he's, the people he's thinking of as his audience are not the people in the story. This is, it's a different group of people. And whereas when this, um, when this story took place, really all of the people of the way were Jewish, or now very recently Samaritan, who that they're part of Israel. So they're closely related to the Jerusalem Jews. When Luke is writing now, uh, Luke himself is a Gentile, and he's writing to a, a large number of, at that point, Gentile Christians. So different kind of frame of mind. These Gentile Christians would have had more, their background, let's say, would have been much more Greco-Roman than Hebraic. So their whole understanding of life and culture, etc., was more of a Greco-Roman orientation. All right, so that's our, um, this first kind of behind-the-scenes presence, Luke. Um, I'll also name Isaiah, because we're going to see that this Ethiopian is reading a scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the main Old Testament prophets of Judaism. A very important book. And, I should say, a very important book to Luke. Isaiah finds its way into Luke's gospel and into Acts. So we've got Luke, we've got Isaiah, um, we've got Jesus. So, uh, again, it's easy to just like read past Jesus when we're going through this thing, but, but think of Jesus as a personal presence kind of behind this um, story as we read it. There is the angel of the Lord. So the impetus that moves Philip um, to this desert road where he's going to meet the Ethiopian 
is from the angel of the Lord. There's also the Spirit of God, because as the story unfolds, Philip is directed by the Spirit of God. We also have the Kandaki, queen of the Ethiopians. This is the Ethiopian's boss. He's, he's her CFO. And uh, so she's behind the scenes. We also have the chariot driver. So not named. We don't know anything but implied because the Ethiopian at one point gives a command for the chariot to stop. Also, I should point out, if you have an image in your mind of like a little bucket chariot with a horse on the other end, might want to modify that because... This is an 1,100-mile journey. This is a five-month journey each way. Probably this Ethiopian, well, certainly he's not traveling alone um, unless he knows how to drive a chariot and read a scroll at the same time. So there's at least a driver, but there's probably more. And whatever this chariot is, I'm thinking something more like a covered wagon. Because they, I mean, they're living on the road. I mean, certainly, they'll stop in some cities on the way when they can, but still, five months. Um, so bear that in mind. All right. Luke, Isaiah, Jesus, Angel of the Lord, Spirit of God, Kandaki, chariot driver. And I want to add the suffering servant, the character within the little piece of Isaiah that we get to hear. All right, so that's eight presences that are kind of behind, plus the two primary characters, ten, nice even number. All right. As we come to the reading of this text, I would like us to pray together, and so going to have a prayer on the screen. If you're comfortable just reading that along with me, I think it will launch us well. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our ready hearts and kindle in us the fire of your love. Illuminate the reading of your word and guide our interpretation of this passage for your glory and for your delight. Amen. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And out of breath, 
Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Get up here. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer was, is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The word of the Lord. What a great story. What a great, great story. So um, some more things about Philip. We talked about how he was one of the seven. We talked about how he was an effective evangelist in Samaria. Um, There's not much else about Philip after this story, but he does show up in the 21st chapter of Acts. So that's 20 years after this occurrence. That's 20 years later. Luke, at this point, is in the story, or at least the doesn't necessarily name himself, but it's, the narrative changes to a we and I, and he's traveling with Paul. And they are making their way toward... Um, Jerusalem, and the, the, there is an account of the different towns that they stop in, and one of the places they stay um, is Caesarea, and it says they stayed with Philip the Evangelist, who had four da- daughters who prophesied. So I love this kind of detail. It seems reasonable to me. That's where Luke heard this story. They're staying with this now older Philip the Evangelist. He's still known as that. And I also have to wonder, like the way this the way this account says, you know, that he he appeared in Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. I think he met somebody there, right? (laughs) 
uh, somebody he liked. He settled down and had four daughters. And uh, I'm sure there were, I mean, there, there's no reason to think there weren't a literal four prophesying daughters, but I also like the symbolism of it. It, to me, might even represent the church in the, at the four corners of the earth, four daughters, four directions, even the four stages of what Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and they're prophesying, and they're the daughters of this evangelist who started so much of, um, of the movement. All right, so let's uh, talk a bit about this Ethiopian. Quite a mysterious character in many ways. This is, um, he's, he's, when he's introduced, the text says, a man, an Ethiopian, a eunuch. So, Luke is giving some particulars about this person. Also, he has traveled to Jerusalem, 1,100 miles, to worship. Okay, why would you travel five months from Africa to Jerusalem to worship unless you were Jewish or had some very strong connection to Judaism. Now, it does not, the text does not say he was Jewish, but it also does not say he was Gentile, other than saying that he came from, you know, this far, from the ends of the earth, essentially, because that's what Ethiopia, when, when that designation was used. It was a very generalized term. It didn't refer to, at that time, it did not refer to what we now think of as the nation of Ethiopia. It was, it was the whole region of uh, Sudan and that um, area of, of Africa. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, so yeah, it, it that's a Gentile area, but it doesn't say he was a Gentile. It doesn't say that he was a proselyte. And it's interesting, one of the, another one of the seven, Nicholas, is specifically designated as a proselyte or a, con a convert to Judaism from Antioch. So you would think that's part of how Luke is communicating this story, but he doesn't here. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity. And a lot of the reading that I did in, in preparing for this, people are trying to figure out. You know, and everybody, they have to have these scholarly opinions about, you know, was Ethiopian a Gentile? And, or was he Jewish? Or was he um, a God-fearer? Or was he a convert? Or what, what was he? In my opinion, Luke is very intentionally not letting us know. The, everything about this character is in between. He's in the liminal space. He's ambiguous in some ways. 
it's a, it's, um, he's hard to categorize. And I think that's on purpose. And I think that's part of how Luke is challenging his audience. Because as the story proceeds, this person is baptized, becomes part of this family of faith. So he has to be now seen as one of us. Remarkable and wonderful. I think it's also worth pointing out that, um, you know, when Philip asks him, do you know, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? Nobody explains it to me. This is not a comprehension question. This is an interpretation question. He understands very well what he's reading. He understands it well enough to be able to ask a very subtle kind of interpretive question. Is the prophet writing about himself or someone else? And why do you think this passage is so important to this Ethiopian? Relate to. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his, its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. See, that's another thing about this eunuch that is, um, difficult to categorize. He's the chief financial officer for the queen. He's got privilege. He's got power. He's got permission to take a year to make this journey to Jerusalem to worship. He's got people that obey his commands. The other, the, at least the chariot driver. He's a powerful, influential person. And yet, he's probably, at least on some level, enslaved. His body has been changed by someone else, not by his own choice. So he's in between. And I think he sees himself here. In fact, um, it's interesting to speculate on, on what other passages of Scripture Philip may, may have reached into to, to talk with him, to reveal to him the Savior, Jesus And I would suggest that part of the reason he was so ready to be baptized is that he saw himself in Jesus and he saw Jesus in himself. 
All right, we've got a couple of minutes. I want to hear what you think. Anybody have a comment, a question, any sparks going off, any lights flickering in your, your awareness as, as we look at this passage? I mean, we could go on for a long time. We won't do that. But I want to give a space. Part of what's been so wonderful for me in preparing, we've got Bob over here, this is the conversations I've had around it. Um, the uh, Covenant Living at the Shores, I got to be there and... Uh, Staff just talking about this has been great. So, Bob. In your reading, um, some of the, the theory of this is he went on back to Ethiopia and brought right. the faith because mm -hmm. Ethiopia had, had been, has been a Christian country, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I just wonder what, what you've read about that. It is definitely a time-honored tradition. It goes back to, I think it was Irenaeus who started it. Um, suggested that. So it's uh, very early um, that uh, that suggestion is made. I, I don't think there's any reason to think it did not happen because he went on his way rejoicing. He was, this was, this was a real thing. You know, this was a real encounter. Um, he clearly is presented as someone who came to faith. And he was someone who had a voice. Again, even though uh, <laughs> ambiguous in some ways and, and uh, his life was not all about privilege and power, he did have influence. So it's hard to imagine that he didn't talk about his faith. Plus, it also seems there was a, 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 his, a, you know, a strong history of Judaism there. So he wouldn't have been starting from zero. He, he, presumably, there would have been some community of people there who also um, knew the, the Jewish scriptures. Somebody? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I don't find it surprising that we don't fully understand what was going on for the Ethiopian, uh, but I know from hearing uh, testimonies of Christians over decades God puts together circumstances and hearts that may not make sense to anyone else mm. um, to um, quicken our spirit. Yeah. And he certainly did that for me, mm. where the, the pastor of the church at the outreach I was um, attending when I came to faith was thinking, oh, this is much too hokey for anyone on Mercer Island to ever <laughs> fall for. And... Fifty years later, here I am. <laughs> From Sue Banks. What's that? If we were sitting in the chariot next to Philip explaining the good news to Phil, to the Ethiopian, what did Philip say? Mm. Oh, there are lots of ideas about that. One of my favorite ones is, uh, like, okay, so the, the scroll there is Isaiah. But Philip knew the scriptures, so he probably had some things by memory, too. And I just wonder if he went to Jeremiah 38. It's the story of uh, the princes of the land throw Jeremiah, the prophet, in a cistern to die, to starve to death and die. 
the advocate for Jeremiah was an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. And he goes to the king and he says, hey, the princes threw Jeremiah in this cistern and he will surely die there unless we rescue him. And the king gives permission to Ebed-Melech to take a few men with him and to pull Jeremiah out. It's great detail in the story, even to the point where it says Ebed-Melech went to the royal wardrobe and got some old clothes and rags and threw those down first and told Jeremiah, put them under your armpits and then put the rope around and we'll pull you. Just so that he wouldn't get hurt by the rope. It's a completely unmiraculous story of salvation. And the savior in the story is an Ethiopian eunuch. I like to think that's one of the things that Philip told this eunuch, again, as this point of contact, like, you're already in this story. Before we go on, let me read uh, Sue Banks. Never thought that this eunuch could have felt like a lamb at the slaughter himself. No wonder he wanted to know more. Were there others, Susan? Did you see online? Okay. Brenda. Yeah, I was just thinking about other eunuchs in the Bible. And in Esther, there were many eunuchs. And Mm. my understanding is, is that in order to serve a near royalty who were female, men would often need to become eunuchs. Do you think that was the case for this gentleman? Probably so. I mean, especially since he had such a conspicuous role. Uh, I should explain this kandaki. It says queen of the Ethiopians. Actually, this was the sister of the king of Cush. But the royal line traveled through the woman, the female, the sister. So she's the queen mother of the Ethiopians. So again, very conspicuous. He has this very known role. And it was not at all uncommon, as you point out, um, in circumstances like that for um, eunuchs to serve. And so, the, and they did have, it was an, apparently a very interesting, strange kind of thing because they had this respected, trusted sort of position, but there was also great stigma. And so they, they walked in, in two realities. I was really struck by the eunuch's uh, statement in verse 6 where he says, what can stand in the way uh-huh. of me being baptized? Uh-huh. And a couple thoughts that come to mind is for us and for him, if God's plan and purpose for this man to become closer like us to God, mm. nothing can stand in the way. Awesome. But it also makes me think, what's happening in my life that's standing in the way of a closer relationship with Christ? Interesting. Also interesting that that is the second of three uses of the word way in regard to the eunuch. There are two two uses uh, relating to Philip, but the eunuch is on his way home, And then he says, what can stand in the way? And then at the end, he goes on his way rejoicing. And as Amanda was pointing out today, uh, the way is like Luke's favorite terminology for following Jesus. So I read that and I see someone who is, the spirit is at work in his life all along. Before he fully comes to see the whole picture. Anybody else? 
We got Marsha over here. Um, Nancy's got a mic for you. Well, what came to mind for me is 1 Peter 3.15. Hmm. Always be ready to give an account of the hope that's in you. And it sounds to me that's what was going on. And so it's a calling for each of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should probably transition to communion. But uh, please know that if you would like to continue interacting about this passage, I'd uh, be very open to that. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. And, you know, we could converse by email or by phone or whatever works for you. Um, let's let's keep it going. Uh, one other thing I'll say before we move to the table. I love the question, do you understand what you're reading? And how can I unless somebody guides me? Let's think in terms of the Holy Spirit asking us that question every time we approach Scripture. Open the book, read. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? The Holy Spirit, the guide. And again, not a comprehension question, an interpretation question. This is the digging in question.